Amen. So, as Linda mentioned, we are starting a four-week series on the short book of Jonah, one of the minor prophets, not because it's uh, of less significance than the other prophets, but it's called a minor prophet because of its length. It's because it's so short. Um, And even if you've not read the book of Jonah, I encourage you to do so. It only takes about 10 minutes, maybe less than 10 minutes to read it through. But even if you've never read the book of Jonah, you probably know about Jonah spending three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, literally a huge fish, or perhaps because you've watched the VeggieTales movie. Anyone seen the VeggieTales version? Um, Now, I've never preached through Jonah before, so this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, because Jonah is truly a unique book in the Old Testament. See, unlike all the other prophetic books, which are mostly about the prophet preaching to Israel what they heard from the Lord, you know, say the word of the Lord came to Isaiah or to Ezekiel or to Amos, and they preached what they heard. Jonah, on the other hand, is a book that is mostly a story about the prophet himself. So it's not so much about what the prophet says as what the prophet does. And it's also unique for a few other reasons. Firstly, Jonah was not being sent, as we just heard, to Israel, unlike most prophets, but to the Ninevites, a nation of Gentiles who are particularly known for their violence and their cruelty. This is unheard of. Why would God be sending an Israelite prophet to a nation of Gentiles to warn them about God's coming judgment? Why would God care about the Ninevites? We'll explore that through this series. Secondly, Jonah was not really what you would call a particularly good prophet. The book starts out with Jonah on the run from God, um, refusing to accept his assignment and trying to get as far away from God as possible, even attempting to sail to the ends of the earth. Then following Jonah's miraculous aquatic adventures with the whale, Jonah reluctantly does what God asks of him, but when his preaching is actually a success and the Ninevites repent, and they turn to God, Jonah is depressed about it, as we'll look at in the last chapter. He's angry with God about this. Jonah's last words in the book are literally, I am so angry, I wish I was dead. I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. Not a great end to his prophetic career. Thirdly, it's one of the books, one of the few books in the Old Testament that Jesus specifically mentions. In both Matthew and Luke, when the Pharisees ask Jesus to give them a sign, a miraculous sign to confirm that he's speaking the truth, Jesus says the only sign that this wicked generation is gonna get is the sign of Jonah. What's that about? We'll explore that next week. So what is Jonah all about? What's going on? At heart, Jonah is a story about a man struggling to accept God's will. And he's having an identity crisis. He's having a crisis of calling. He's having a crisis of faith. In that sense, Jonah is a very human story. I think it's one that we'll all be able to relate to in a bunch of different ways. And it's actually a story that's full of irony, it's full of humor, it's full of failure, depression, and nearly every other human emotion. Um, But it's also a story about God, especially God's surprising kindness, patience, faithfulness, and mercy, not only to Jonah, but also to the Ninevites. So as we look at this short but punchy book, we'll discover, I think, some of the most powerful and beautiful truths in the scriptures about sin and judgment, about mercy and grace, about failure and forgiveness, about calling and identity. So we're gonna have a whale of a time. Yeah, I had to do it. Come on, I had to do it, you know. 
just once, just once. Okay, so first of all, we've got to ask, what kind of book is Jonah? The Bible, I believe, has been given to us by God, not just so that we can have a nice inspirational thought each morning to help us get through the day. Yes, the Bible can be very inspiring, but that's not the point. The point of the Bible is to form us, to shape us, to change us, to redefine us, to refine our thinking, and to transform our identities so that we can be more faithful followers of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we believe that the, the whole of the Bible, all of the scriptures, are there to ultimately point us to Jesus, to reveal Jesus to us, to therefore teach us about the character of God, to help us understand how we are called to participate with the mission of God in the world, and to help us deepen and strengthen our relationship with him. Can I get an amen? So how do we see that at work in the book of Jonah? Well, first we have to ask what type of book this is. And as you know, the Bible is not a single book, it's a library of books, of lots of different books, each with a different genre. We have history, we have biography, we have poetry, we have letters, we have visions. Uh, so we can't read each of the books in the same way as the others. To honor God's word means to try and read it correctly, and that means to honor the genre in which the book has been written. So if we're reading poetry, we read it as poetry, not as history or as law, uh, and so on. So sometimes the books, however, are doing multiple things at once. The prophecies are often preached as poetry or as parable, and that makes them really difficult to interpret because you have both a prophetic word, but it's being presented to you as poetry rather than just kind of as a literal newspaper report. And we saw this all the way through the book of Revelation, didn't we? There are lots of parts of the book of Revelation which are doing different things, and so you have to be really careful with what is happening in each particular section, not just in the book as a whole. And so Jonah is a bit like this. And the truth is that biblical scholars are somewhat divided over what kind of book Jonah is. There are two main views. You're all okay? We're doing all right so far? There's two main views about Jonah. One, that it's a historical account. That what we have in this story is essentially a description of what actually happened. It's history. It's nonfiction. It's just describing the events. And that's probably the most common view. But there's another view which says that Jonah is a kind of parable. You know, rather like the book of Job or many of Jesus' parables. A parable based on an actual historical figure, like we know Jonah was a real person, he's mentioned in 2 Kings, uh, but the author, who may have or may not have been Jonah himself, we don't know, does not intend us to read this as a historical account as much as a parable, a story intended to teach us something, right? To reveal truth to us in a narrative form, in a narrative mode. Now, whichever one you think is most likely, what I do want to say is that it should have nothing to do with the whale, right? To view this as a parable is not to say that you could, you know, you can't believe all that stuff about Jonah spending three nights, three days and three nights in the belly of a whale or a giant fish, right? I believe in miracles. I believe God does them all the time. I pray this morning as we were uh, praying for those who need healing that God would do a miracle uh, in our lives for those who need it. All right, so I believe in miracles, I believe God does them, I believe in the resurrection, which is the greatest miracle in history. Right, so I believe that God is a miracle-working God who can do the impossible. So for me, whichever way I read the book of Jonah, it should have nothing to do with whether or not I believe in the plausibility of a, a man spending three days and three nights in the belly of a giant fish. 
God often does the unexpected and the unexplainable, so for me, that's not the issue. There are a couple of reasons why I think it might be a narrative parable. One is because it's just so unique in the Bible. There's really nothing else like it. Uh, and the genre, I think, seems to point in that direction. It uses a lot of narrative literary devices. There's a lot of repetitive exaggeration, for example. The word huge or giant or big is used about 15 times. There's also a lack of names and dates. Not even the king of Nineveh is named, unlike what you see in most of the historical books of the Old Testament where dates are mentioned, names are mentioned. This happened here on this date at this time. This was the king. These were the people involved. Like the history books give us a lot of detail about who is involved and what's going on and when it all happened. We don't get a lot of that in the book of Jonah. And also the fact that he's trying to sail to Tarshish is a, was actually a, a way of saying in the ancient world, Israel at that time, that I'm gonna sail to the other side of the world. I'm getting as far away as, I'm going to Tarshish, would be like us saying, I'm clearing off to Iceland. I'm gonna get as far away from here as I possibly can. And the story is actually brilliant comedic satire. It's intended to be funny as we read it. Um, it's full of wit and irony and sarcasm. It's a bit like an episode of Blackadder. Um, Everything is upside down and back to front. Like the good guy is the bad guy in this story. And the Gentiles who, from the perspective of most Israelites at that time would have been seen as the evil people, in this story they're actually seen as pretty good, pretty decent moral people who are trying to do the right thing. And so the Gentiles are paint, painted in a way that's completely backwards to the way that uh, Jonah is, is thinking. And the Israelite here, Jonah, is presented as unfaithful and uncaring. And the bad guys, it's interesting to me, repent really easily. Like the sailors, after they hear where Jonah's from, call on the name of the Lord, like they cry out to him. Like there's a mini revival that goes on on the deck of the ship. Even though Jonah doesn't intend this at all, they repent and they turn to Jesus, oh, sorry, not to Jesus, but to God, to the Lord. Um, and so, you know, we see that they're so receptive to the word of God. And the Ninevites also repent after a five-word sermon, which a friend of mine described as possibly the worst, most half-hearted sermon ever preached in the history of the world, right? Jonah's like so reluctant. He's just like, here, guys, this is the basic info you need. Huh. And the whole city repents, as we'll see, right? <laughs> and so God uses Jonah's half-hearted sermon very powerfully. That's something I pray for all the time. Lord, please. <laughs> And even Jonah's name is kind of ironic. Jonah, son of Amittai, means, it means dove, one who is like a dove, the son of faithfulness, right? Dove implying innocence or gentleness. So Jonah's name means an innocent son of faithfulness. And everyone, when they hear this after reading the story, is gonna roll their eyes and like, yeah, whatever, give me a break. The guy is the opposite of that, right? So his name is ironic. Either way you read the book, whether you read it as history or as parable, the message is the same. Jonah is a representative character of God's people, of all of us, and a representative of how easily we find it, even though we are God's people, even though God has given us so much and blessed us with so much and been so good to us, how easily we distrust him and sabotage our lives. Can I get an amen in the room this morning? Do you ever self-sabotage? Do you ever do things you know you shouldn't? Even though you know God is good, he's done so much for you, you find it so easy to distrust him 
and to sabotage our lives, how easily we give in to sin. And so this is about you, this is about me, and I think Jonah helps us to look in the mirror. That's part of what this story is here for, I think, to help us look in the mirror. And that's really hard. Self-awareness is really, really hard. It's really difficult. It's really difficult to look in the mirror and be honest about what it is that's staring back at you. Can I get an amen to that? But if we refuse to do that, we'll never change. If we, re if we refuse to be honest with ourselves, we will never change. And so Jonah is here to help us be honest with ourselves and therefore to change. Another way to put this is Eugene Peterson does in his book about Jonah called Under the Unde Unpredictable Plant, that Jonah is really an extended book about sin and about all the ways that we can be deceived by sin, especially as religious people, and how God graciously restores us to the truth about him and about ourselves. And here in chapter one, we're given this tremendous introduction to the subject of sin, which you cannot avoid if you want to make any kind of progress in your spiritual journey of discipleship. So I know we don't like to talk about sin all that much, and these days, you know, it seems to me we love to talk about our trauma, but we very rarely are willing to talk about our culpability. Let me say that again. In our culture, we're very easy to talk about our trauma, things done to us by other people, but we are very reluctant to talk about our culpability. There are good reasons for this, right? Words like sinner, heathen, heretic, have been used for centuries to exclude people, to dehumanize and depersonalize people, as Jonah actually does in this book in regards to the Ninevites. However, as much as we might not like it, we avoid talking about sin to our detriment. A few weeks ago, I talked about why the doctrine of sin was necessary for the preservation of democracy. You can go back and listen to that if you want to. But today, what we're gonna be talking about is why the doctrine of sin is so important, so necessary, for the preservation of our soul. Now you might be saying, well I guess I can skip the next four weeks because I already know about sin. Well, so did Jonah. Jonah knew exactly who the sinners were, right? It was those Ninevites. Well, who is actually the real sinner in this story? It's Jonah. And so it's one thing to believe in sin, friends. It's easy to see it in others, isn't it? It's another thing to discern how it is at work in your own heart. And despite the fact that Jonah was a prophet, despite the fact that he was a religious leader, or maybe because of those things, there was a kind of sin in Jonah's soul that he would not acknowledge until it erupted and blew up his whole life. Actually, I think that's one of the reasons then that we've been given the book of Jonah, because there are a lot of us like that, maybe all of us. I love what Peterson says, I have this on the slide. Every congregation is a congregation of sinners. As if that weren't bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors. So sorry to disappoint you. Um, you need this book, I need this book. Linda's okay, but I'm in trouble. <laughs> all right, the reality is, as Peterson also says, next slide, there are a thousand ways of being religious without submitting to Christ's lordship. And religious people are practiced in most of them. While everyone has a hunger for God deep and insatiable, none of us has any great desire for him. What we really want is to be our own gods and to have whatever other gods that are around 
to help us in this work. We might even call the God that we worship by the name of Jesus, but the question is, is he actually Lord? Is he, or is he really just an idealized version of your best self? So we feel our need of God, for sure, and we want what God can give us, but we don't wanna have to submit to him in order to receive it. We wanna be our own gods, we all do. And in any case, often what we think we need from God is not what we need at all. And so that when God gives us what we actually need, we're angry and we're upset about it. It's like, God, were you even listening to my prayers? Did you actually hear what I said? This is not what I need, that's not what I prayed for at all. And God's like, you know, I know you better than you know yourself, trust me. But it's really hard to trust God when we are being stretched and challenged and confronted with things about us that we don't like. Do you recognize yourself in any of this yet? Let's keep going. The fun starts in verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, this innocent son of faithfulness. And so again, you're supposed to eye roll here. Everyone knew that Jonah was neither of those things. In 2 Kings, as I mentioned, when we first read about Jonah, he preached favor and blessing to one of Israel's worst, most ungodly kings. Like he went up to this ungodly king and he said, God's gonna bless you, he's gonna bless you with favor. In fact, another prophet, Amos, had to reverse Jonah's prophecy, kind of like a prophetic quality control supervisor, <laughs> right? Which suggests that Jonah was neither a particularly successful or faithful prophet. Or maybe he was just corrupt, I don't know. And then verse two, okay, sure, I can understand why Jonah would not want to go to a violent and dangerous city like Nineveh. Perhaps he's afraid for his life, I mean, it is a dangerous place, who wouldn't be, okay? But it turns out, as if you read the story carefully, that's not the reason he doesn't want to go to Nineveh at all. That's not the reason at all. So what's going on in Jonah? Verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and verse three, but Jonah ran. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, verse one. Verse three, but Jonah ran. This is not simply an act of disobedience. This is a resignation, right? This is Jonah saying, you know what, God, I'm out. He doesn't just say, the Lord asked Jonah to do this and he wouldn't go. No, instead, he tries to run away from God or sail away, as it were, as far as he can go, get away as far from God as he possibly can, which, of course, is both stupid and ironic. And it's meant to be humorous because as Jonah himself will later say, God is the creator of the dry land and the seas. Jonah knows that he cannot escape God's presence, but he's trying anyway. It's futile, he knows it, but he won't admit it to himself. It's not just disobedience. There's something else going on in Jonah's heart here. And I like what Tim Keller says about this, that the point of Jonah running to the ends of the earth isn't just that he's refusing to go to Nineveh, it's that he's having a crisis of faith. His identity up to this point has been that he's a prophet, capital P. He's a prophet, he's a religious man, this has been his calling, this has been his, his vocation, and so everything in his life has been oriented toward that calling, but he no longer wants it. He's like, I'm done, I'm out of here. He's not just dis disobeying God, he's rejecting God entirely. He's saying, I don't wanna submit to you, I'm gonna go off and run my life my own way. 
I'm no longer gonna get my identity or my purpose from what you say, from the word of the Lord. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. I'm gonna live as I wanna live. And I'm gonna go as far away as I possibly can if I have to. So he's doing a Miley Cyrus. I'm gonna buy myself flowers, thanks God, because I can love me better than you can. Now, <laughs> we spoke <clears throat> during our recent Jesus and Culture series about this radical shift that has taken place in Western thinking in regards to the way that we understand ourselves, like our sources of identity, right? So we live in a culture that has broadly rejected the idea that our identity is given to us from outside of ourselves, from God or from the network of relationships that we're embedded in or whatever else. Instead, by our way of thinking, right, we find our identity, we find our true selves within ourselves on the basis of ourselves alone, right? But in the biblical worldview, in the Christian understanding of the self, the deepest secret of your identity is in the Word of God. Now, I don't just mean the Bible, but that's part of it. I mean God's declaration over your life as someone made in his image and formed for his purposes, which is the only way when you receive this from him is the only way that you can experience true freedom and true joy and enter into the kind of human life that you were made for. Are you with me? Well, it turns out, actually, this is not a new problem at all. If we look if the book of Jonah is anything to go by, Jonah said, I'm going the other way. God's word came to me, but I'm running from it. I'm gonna decide who I am. I'm gonna build my own identity without reference to God. And that's what's going on here. This is not just simply disobedience. It's something much, much deeper. And so the Bible tells us over and over that this move to try and build our identity apart from God is in fact the very essence of sin. Now, you may think that sin is just breaking the rules, but that's not true. Sin goes much, much deeper. Sin is actually trying to build an identity and trying to create a life apart from God or without God. But when you do that, as we see in the story of Jonah and all the way through the scriptures and all the way through human history, when we try to do that, nothing but disaster follows. It simply can't be done. And it's no mistake here that while Jonah's on the run from God, He's crossing the ocean, and the ocean becomes violent and tumultuous, which takes us right back to Genesis 1, where before God brings his order into the world, before he begins to put his identity on the world, what, how is the creation described? As formless and void, these chaotic waters surging, and then God begins to speak his word, and order and life and blessing and peace begin to flow. So whenever we try to run away from the word of God, the declaration of God's word over our lives, we enter into that chaos which God's word alone can keep under control, can order. So when we try to build an identity apart from God, nothing but disaster follows, nothing but chaos follows, it simply can't be done. And that will be much clearer next week when we look at Jonah's prayer inside the whale. But here's the teaser, when Jonah finally comes to his senses while he's inside the whale, he says this in Jonah chapter two, it's on the screen. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. And let me tell you, there is no idol more worthless, 
more empty in the end than to make yourself a God. To turn away from God's love to anything else, even to ourselves, will in the end lead to nothing but despair. And in 1849, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book called The Sickness Unto Death, which was really all about sin. And in the book, he gives a definition of sin, which he called the sickness unto death. But what is that? Kierkegaard says, I'm not gonna try and describe or catalog all individual sins, but I wanna give a definition that will embrace all forms like a net. And this is what he said, it's on the screen. <laughs> to be sinful is to affirm in defiance that one's own existence has no relation to God. And so this is actually how he put it. Sin is to despair of getting a self before God or from God, and then the despair of seeking to be oneself without God. That is the essence of sin. Now it's been variously described as pride, like the, the original sin was pride. But in a sense, the pride is just the outworking of this desire to be our own God. And what does that mean? What Kierkegaard is saying is that Sin is to do exactly what Jonah is doing, to do what Adam and Eve did in the beginning, to try and get a self or an identity apart from God. But not only that, sin is then the despair that comes from trying to be yourself without God. This is exactly what the devil said in the beginning to Eve. You do you, Eve, and as a result, you will be like, what did, what did the devil say? You will be like God. Just take what it is that you desire, Eve, and you can be like God. But it can't be done. Kierkegaard says any person who tries to manufacture his or her own identity without God gets an identity, and I love this image, which is like being a king without a country or the king of a country whose subjects are constantly in rebellion. I think that's brilliant. It's either pointless or it's or pointless and powerless or it's chaos, right? That's the kind of definition that, Kierkegaard gives to us. Either way, both lead to what Kierkegaard calls the sickness unto death, despair, hopelessness, meaningless. And I think that's why Jonah is asleep in the boat in the middle of the violent storm, which is threatening to sink the whole ship. Like, I don't think he's resting. I think he's just given up. He's given into apathy. He no longer cares. What's the point, right? This is the sickness unto death. Jonah is asleep in the midst of a crisis. He couldn't be bothered. Who cares, everything is meaningless. He has given in to despair. He has become exactly what Kierkegaard said sin does to us. It leads us to nothing but despair. Despair of a future, despair of hope, despair of any real meaning, all of that. And it's actually not until he's confronted with the possible deaths of the sailors that he's roused to be honest, right? It's not until he's confronted with the reality that his disobedience is actually causing great harm to other people that is willing to be honest with himself and with God. And so I think the modern idea that you can just do whatever you want so long as you don't harm anyone actually leads to great harm for everyone. I think it's a total lie because no person is an island. We know this. What's the phrase? All it takes for evil to flourish is for good people to do nothing. So if we're just out for ourselves, as long as we don't hurt other people, if we're just seeking our own good, in the end, we're actually causing harm for everybody because the call of a disciple of Christ 
and we all know this, the call of a disciple of Christ is not just to look after ourselves, not just seek our own good, but to be salt and light, to not just try and avoid evil, but to seek the good of other people, to work for the blessing and benefit of other people. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to give ourselves so that others may live and flourish and experience the life that we have in Christ. It's not enough for us just to try not to be bad. Our calling is to seek to be good, and not just for our own sake, but for the sake of others. Because if the human family is not actually doing this together, in the end, evil will flourish. And I think that's what we see here in the book of Jonah. So perhaps Jonah's given in to despair because he thinks maybe he's already failed God. You know, maybe that's possible. He's already a failed prophet. He's like, what's the point? I'm not very good at this. I'm just gonna get out of here. Um, as we kind of mentioned earlier, I don't know. But the panicked sailors cast lots and it falls on Jonah, and notice what the sailors ask. It's not, so Jonah, tell us how you manifest your identity in the world. No, they ask him, what kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? What people are you from? Notice then how Jonah describes himself, and I think here is where he starts to come to his senses. He says this, I am a Hebrew, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the seas and the dry land. And I think this is crucial, and I think this tells us everything. And I'm gonna finish with this, I'll complete the rest of chapter one, I'm going to chapter two next week. I think in this moment, Jonah is finally being honest. He has stopped running. He's realized that his rejection of God is foolish. And so he speaks the truth. And these three statements are not only essential for Jonah, but I think they're essential for you and I as well. Because it's in these three statements that these three statements form the basis of our identities. He says, I'm a Hebrew. What does that mean? I belong to God's covenant people. <laughs> Number two, I worship the Lord. I bow down to him alone. My true self is defined by the one whom I worship. And I worship the Lord. Right? So either we worship ourselves or the world, which is despair or, and death, or we worship God, who is life and freedom. That's our choice. And number three, who is the God of heaven, the creator of all things? So let's be clear, the created world is not God. All right? Jonah's saying, I do not worship the world. I worship the one who created the world. And so the world must not be worshipped. And because we are creations of the God who created all things, and we are God's image bearers, therefore our lives have infinite purpose and infinite value, and so do the lives of all other people. Like, as followers of Jesus, we are representatives of God in the world. So these three statements, I'm a Hebrew, I belong to God's covenant people, which we believe is also our identity through the precious blood of Christ. We have become heirs of the promise. We have also become children of Abraham. We are now the children of God. And so therefore, we worship the Lord of heaven alone. Our identity is defined by the one that we worship. We look to him as our source of life and truth and power. He alone is the one who should receive our allegiance, receive our worship, receive uh, our praise and adoration. And he is the creator of all things. And so therefore, nothing in this world that he made can satisfy us 
or speak that word that we all need to hear in the deepest part of our soul above him. He alone can do this, right? He is the only one who can say to you that you are a child of God. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. Like God did over Jesus at his baptism. This is my son. That is the declaration. That is the only word in your life that can ever actually satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. If you do not hear that word, if you do not receive that word, you will desperately, for the whole of your life, look for that kind of affirmation from everything else. You'll make gods of everything else around you because we have been created to need this word spoken into our souls. And if we don't get it from the Lord, we'll look, to it, we'll look for it from everything else. See, the issue is we have been created in such a way that we cannot validate ourselves. I cannot make myself myself. Um, Because, I think, the only sustaining self in the universe, the only one who does, does not need other persons to be complete, is God. We've been created to need God's affirmation over us in order to feel complete. And so if we don't seek our identity ultimately from him, from the one who is uncreated, who needs no one else, who is the self from which all other selves come. Unless we find that from him, we'll desperately seek for it in everything else. We'll hold on to whatever else we can. And so as we come to the communion table here this morning, I'm gonna pray a prayer from this book called Liturgies for Hope which is a prayer for those who worship the wrong thing. And I think this is a really beautiful way to draw this morning, this message, this passage from Jonah 1 to a conclusion. Let me read this. Let me invite you just to close your eyes and let me pray this over us. Oh Lord, we were knit in the womb to worship, but how quickly our adoration splits and refracts when we cannot touch your face. Impatient, we trade our inheritance for pocket change, our banquet for scraps, our life for death. We have neither melted gold nor carved from stone, but we have fashioned idols with our own hands master craftsmen who are craving, thirsting, seeking. What is not you? We can list our golden calves by name, sex, money, power, comfort, approval. But, O oh, Father, and clench our tight fists so that we can see the false gods we have made of your blessings, of family, of health, of cities, of vocation, even coffee. We confess the disordered loves we have never examined. Lord, when we settle for so little, yet you are a jealous God and your perfect love will not stand to see us on bended knees before any throne but your own. Help us to trust the nail-haunted hands that loosen our grip on what we have placed before you.
Oh Christ, may we lose our appetite for artificial joy. Instead of hungering for what is real, may we tire of serving multiple masters and ache for the affections of one. May we set the cross at the center of our gaze. May we proclaim with reordered hearts that only you can satisfy, that only in you is our hope secure. May the emptiness of our own creations point us to the fullness that can only be found in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.